Good morning, everybody. Happy, happy Sunday morning, beautiful church. Those of you who haven't seen my face around before, uh, my name's Jeff. I work in the school district here in town, and typically my family, we come to the 9 o'clock service, so it's been a while since um, I've been to the 10.30 service, but glad to see all of you here today. Uh, that being said, my name being Jeff, um, I'm not Brock. Where's Brock today? Where are the Ashleys? Um, <clears throat> they are over at our sister church at Parkland Chapel in Missouri, um, giving an update, kind of a state of the church address with them, what's happening here with our congregation. Uh, we are uh, kind of a, a split from that church, not a split, split's probably the wrong word, but we branch, we've branched off from that church, as Brock used to be over there. So he should be back next Sunday. Um, if you do have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, we are going to continue in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we just finished Genesis chapter 1 last week. And we'll kind of do a quick recap of Genesis chapter 1 um, as we get started this morning. I, I titled it also in the beginning because we pick up chapter 2. It's, it's a, a recount of some of the creation story, what happened out of chapter 1. So as a reminder of where we've been over the last couple of weeks, if uh, you've been here the last couple of weeks, Brock talked about the idea that before anything else there was simply God. Uh, the first four words of our Bible, in the beginning, God, uh, in the Hebrew, Bereshit Elohim, uh, Bereshit being the Hebrew for Genesis, Genesis being a Greek word, follows the account of the days of creation. And in that account, we see that God has uh, saw, quote, saw that it was good seven times in his creation story. We talked last week about a couple of different uh, Hebrew words, bara and asa, meaning to bara, meaning to create out of nothing. God formed this existence out of no existence. Only he can do that. You and I cannot, by definition, bara things in this world, but we can asa things in this world. And we're going to talk about asa a couple different times today uh, to make or to form out of the elements. One of those that most commonly comes to my mind when I think of asa is the, the figurative language in Scripture of God being the potter, us being the clay, and that he forms our lives. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture in the New Testament, he actually talks about us being his workmanship, his poem, his poema, as uh, the, the Greek word would have been. Again, uh, where we've been, it was referenced the last couple of weeks, the order of things, how there had been darkness, and darkness is being transitioned, being moved to light. Referenced, if we flip into Second Corinthians, just as a uh, understanding of what Brock had mentioned last week, if I could get there, Second Corinthians, chapter four, verse six: For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness," is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Remember that there was light that existed in the creation story prior to the physical elements of the sun and the moon. Light was there. And um, I mentioned 
in the, in the earlier service, spoiler alert, if you flip to the back of the book, if you flip to the last couple of pages and you go to Revelation, you're going to see that there's no longer need for a sun as a new heaven and a new earth are created, that God himself is our light. That is a theme that continues to persist throughout Scripture, this idea of darkness moving to light. And thank God for it. In that creation story of chapter 1, day 6, when God created man, the very first act that he did was to, the Hebrew term is barak, to bless. He blessed man. And below there on the screen, you see there's various definitions of that word barak. To bless is to give one's favor to another. We think of some of the blessings that are pronounced in Scripture from one generation to the next. Maybe that's lost a little bit on us today with wills and testimonies and powers of attorneys. Uh, But that idea of passing that blessing on from one generation to another. Part of that definition being that we are his rightful heirs. To heir means that we are given dominion, to we are to rule with him. We are meant to rule with him. Remember, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come back again. He's preparing palaces, part of that kingdom for us. He gives us purpose in this world, purpose in this life, as his heirs, as his sons and daughters. And another curious definition of that word Barak is the phrase to kneel before him. We're going to come back to this idea of kneeling as we get into some of chapter 2 today and what that means to kneel before God as part of that blessing that he has bestowed upon us. You may recall some various blessings uh, throughout Scripture. I've referenced you know, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 3, starting in verse 3. Topic that many of us might be familiar with the Beatitudes, Jesus giving a Sermon on the Mount. The various blesseds are. Blessed are the poor in the Spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, verse 4, who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of the righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. And if we continue in verse 12, he, he tells us to actually rejoice um, and be glad for our reward is in heaven and it's great. Romans similarly, chapter 8, verse 14 also references this idea to be an heir of God after having, because I shouldn't say after, but because we have that blessing. Chapter 8, verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. Lost my place there. And if heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. So presented on the screen are two different images. Um, like, like many fellow Americans, I enjoy a good cup of coffee or a good cup of hot tea. Um, one of those cups is clearly going to allow coffee or tea to be poured into it. The other one is going to make quite the mess if I attempt to pour a hot beverage into it. It's going to splatter everywhere, uh, completely miss the mark. And so I ask, if, if we look back at verse 31 of chapter 1, as we get ready to transition into chapter 2, God says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. If God saw that it was very good, and the first thing he did in Scripture that he recorded for man was to bless us, I ask myself, Am I willing to receive that blessing? Am I willing to receive that purpose on my life? His blessings are new every morning. Am I willing to be that bottom image where my cup is overflowing with the joy of His blessings? Or am I going to kick against, to fight against, turn my cup upside down and refuse to receive those blessings from God? Um, the creation story says that we were meant for that purpose. We were meant for that blessing. And usually it'd be about this time in the service where Brock would reference some kind of 80s song that he's listened to. And I thought to myself, what song could I use? Uh, knowing that I'm not Brock, and I am still wearing flannel today. Um, I think that's what you have to wear when you're sitting up here. I thought that Billy Joel had lied to me, right? We didn't start the fire. It's, all, it's been burning since the world's been turning. Sorry, Billy Joel. God said it was very good. It hasn't always been burning since the world's been turning. And where we are today, 2023, the world is not as it was meant to be. And we know in chapter 3 that we're getting to the curse, we're getting to the fall of man, and we're getting to sin, but we're not there yet. We're still in that creation story. And so as we pick up these first seven verses of chapter 2, as we zoom in on the creation of man, God has better for us. And thank God that he's created redemption for that through Christ. And so verse 1 picks up just before day 7. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all of their hosts. And I'm reading out of the NASB, by the way, uh, as far as translations are concerned. Uh, heavens, remember, I'm not going to flip back to it in 2 Corinthians, but it's been referenced a number of times over uh, the last few weeks, the, the three heavens, we have the, the, the physical heaven that, that we can see and feel and has clouds, rain. Beyond that, the stars, the galaxies. And then again, beyond that, as Paul references in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4, where he's caught up in that third heaven after having been stoned. That third heaven is the place where, where God resides, where Christ lives. And Paul says, I'm not allowed to speak. It's illegal for me to speak about what I saw there, how awesome it was. There aren't words for me to be able to use to explain that awesomeness. And so just uh, the history side of me, um, in 1929, going back from about 1913 up to about 1929, um, Edwin Hubble and a number of other scientists established the theory this idea that the universe is actually expanding, 
And the further away from the physical place of Earth, the faster it's expanding, its rate of expansion. Brock had brought up that idea, the second law of thermodynamics, uh, order to disorder, this concept of entropy, that within that fall, uh, we just continue to have more disorder, more chaos, and it's his story to take that disorder, that darkness, and bring it to light, bring it back to light. So I spent some time as I was researching this text, um, reading these first seven verses of chapter two over and over, spent some time just looking at NASA's website and various pictures of the galaxies that are out there. And if you've never done that, a quick scroll on the phone for five minutes is, it left me breathless. Um, I've just put two up here out of thousands that could have been mentioned. The Whirlpool Galaxy and what's known as the Cross of Hubble. I mean, come on, if there's a galaxy out there that looks like that, right? Come on, evolutionists, right? Listen, please. Um, the word hosts in verse 1 there. Hosts is the word sabah. Could mean angels, or it could also mean the heavens alike. His hosts. So, thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts all of these fascinating images we see of galaxies that are out there that are millions of light years away. That, I mean, my mind can't even compute what that number looks like. Also references his angels. And the discipline, the order that's necessary for creation to, to take shape and to hold shape. If we were off our axis, just half a degree, how, how much that would mess up the earth, the physical existence as we know it. If we were a few feet closer to the sun, how much that would, how much of a greater change that would cause to our environment. But also the angels that are out there, the hosts around us that we may or may not see in our lives when we entertain angels, angels singing throughout scripture, angels bringing messages throughout scripture. For those of you that maybe have served in the armed forces or have veterans in your family, they could talk to you about this idea of order and discipline that are necessary for a functioning military unit to, to perform well. And if we don't have that function, chaos ensues. God is bringing that order back into our lives. And so as we move into verses 2 and 3, that hosts, we have... A name for God here, Jehovah Sabaoth. He's the Lord of hosts. Verse 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. The, the Greek word, excuse me, the Hebrew word here is Shabbat. We've probably heard Sabbath, Shabbat. Uh, I had a, an acquaintance once when I lived in a different part of the state who was Israeli, uh, Christian, immigrated to this country. And I would go to Friday night Shabbat services with him from time to time. I got to wear the yarmulke on my head, the Hebrew tradition. Um, a lot of times in our culture we say to, to, to wear a ball cap in public seem, is seen as 
dishonorable. Uh, whereas in the Hebrew culture, they will say you must have your head covered as a way to honor God. Just differences in cultures. Um, I had another friend growing up who was a Seventh-day Adventist and, and um, searching through their tenets. And they, they, they take the Sabbath as a very holy concept still in our modern world. And really, as a kid, what I best remember is on Friday night, if we were hanging out and playing, um, this was before mass text messaging and all those kinds of things. Cell phones really weren't around, but we had cowbells in the neighborhood. And I remember Matt's cowbell would ring. And Matt had to go in and on Friday night, and I really couldn't see Matt again until Saturday night when the Sabbath was over. And so it begs the question, we have this Sabbath and God rested. Why does he rest? And I would, I would argue that he does not need to rest, but he chose to rest. He gave us rest as an example. So why would he give us that example? He wants us to see that we can rest. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We look at some of the scripture examples down here. Probably not a place we often flip to uh, if we go into Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Beginning of chapter 3, you'll see um, scripture related to the song popularized by the birds. There's a time for everything under the sun. But if we fast forward into verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is a gift of God. The man, excuse me, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which is all, that which is has already, has been already. And that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. We look at some New Testament references to the Sabbath. You can find Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 8, and similar story in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 6. Sabbath questions. At the time, Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did? When he became hungry, he and his companions, and how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We skip down to verses 11 and 12, and he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. God rested to show us that it's okay to rest. 
It's okay to rest and enjoy his creation, the work of our hands, what he has given to us as part of that purpose, as we'll see a little bit more in verse 7 as we get into Genesis chapter 2. I put a picture of two people resting in a hammock on the screen. Um, think of your favorite vacation spot. Maybe it's the beach. Maybe it's the mountains. Maybe it's a place like Disney World. Um, how many of us have ever said, I know I'm guilty of it, I just need a vacation from my vacation. That rest that we have in our lives today can feel fleeting. It can feel temporary. God didn't have to rest. He wasn't tired. He's omnipotent. He didn't have to rest, but he chose to. He, he rested to enjoy his creation. And while we have those opportunities to enjoy rest, and that might be lost on us a little bit in our four and five day work weeks and our um, post-COVID, working from home, having vacation days, we still have the opportunity to rest. But I'd like to read a text that I received um, on this idea of resting in Christ. God invited us to rest in Christ. See, the Sabbath day is just an archetype, an example of Christ in us. And every day that we have Christ in us, it's our Sabbath. We have the ability to rest in Him because He is Lord of that Sabbath. So when Brock had asked me to uh, preach again, naturally I, I, I reached out to a few very dear friends and asked for prayer, shared the topic, um, shared the verses. Would you be willing to pray and over and, and read these with me and provide some insight? And about three weeks ago, I got this response from a, a very dear friend. Some thoughts this morning. When he invites us to enter his rest, he's inviting us to a place where the work is already done, where our struggles against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world are already defeated because of his work and his plan. He invites us into relationship with him that has been restored to be like the relationship that was available at first, where we know his voice and commune with him. I thought to myself in a text reply to my friend, I said, I think you need to be the one that's sitting up here and not me. To which he candidly replied, when I saw the set of verses that you are having to preach on today, I'm glad it's you and not me. Uh, I'm very thankful for those, that response, the, the, the comedy of it. But that idea that the Sabbath is just a day and an example that as our redemption story has happened with Christ, every day that we have Christ in our heart, when we've accepted him and have knelt before him, have bowed down to him, we can rest. That victory is won. That's not me saying it. It's this saying it. Flip to the back of the book. The last few pages in Revelation, the enemy's defeated. There won't be need for light. God's our light. No mourning, no tears, no sin. It's all going to be created new. So while we know that the sin, that sin is coming in Genesis 3, we're not there yet. The next big concept that comes out of this first portion of Genesis chapter 2 in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God 
made heaven, excuse me, made earth and heaven. Lord God, Lord or God, in your translation, might be capitalized in all caps. Almost as if the caps lock button got stuck. Um, it's the first mention that we have of YHWH or possibly JHWH in our Bible, Yahweh or Jehovah. Still today, Jews will, will write the word God, G-O-D, with a hyphen in the middle. Uh, vowels in, in Hebrew are, are spoken. They know them. They know what they are. But in their writing, they're not written. And it's the inflection, the, the pronunciation, the way in which the word is spoken that determines which vowels are in that word. And so, still in this modern day, we're not quite sure if the proper pronunciation would be Jehovah or Yahweh. Scholars debate on that. I'm truthfully not sure that, that it really matters. Um, even our word God. I was sitting in a drive-thru yesterday and I thought, you know what? Where does, where does God come from? Where does our word God come from? Maybe you've wondered this before. Maybe you've never wondered that before. We didn't start using the word God uh, in our modern Anglo-Saxon culture until about the 6th century. It comes from a Germanic word, Godin. And so we get into the idea of who is God and what do we call him? What is his name? The Lord God. And scripture is wild on this topic, all over the place on this topic. If we flip to Exodus chapter 3, many of us are probably familiar with this story of the burning bush. Chapter 3, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name, and what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Again, mine's in all caps. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say, to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. If you're familiar at all with the story of Moses, um, many times we, we could break his life down into thirds. First 40 years of his life spent in luxury, um, in the palace, the Egyptians, the next 40, in the wilderness with the Midianites, Marries and finds in that frame, time frame, the burning bush, which begins the transition to that next 40 years of his life, where he goes back to, again, as an archetype of Christ, save the Israelites from slavery and bring them to freedom, bring them to salvation. I am who I am. And so, if, if you're willing to bear with a little foolishness this morning, turn to the person on your right or your left. Let's take five seconds and Actually, introduce yourself. Introduce yourself to that person. If anyone's willing to try that. Turn to your person on your right or to your left. What would you say? Take a moment. How many of us use the phrase, I am, or I'm, conjecture, right? Just introducing ourselves 
we declare God's name in our lives. Hi, I am Jeff. Now think to yourselves, how many times in your day do you use the phrase, I am? I am tired. I am going to bed. I am hungry. I am thirsty. Parents, you love this one. I'm bored. We use it all the time. It's built in the very nature of our language for us to declare God. Before anything else, I am. We sang about it this morning. Two separate songs reference the phrase, I am. And I've heard it mentioned this way before, and this is nothing new. I'm simply repeating what I've heard before. The David Crowder song, I am holding on to you. There's a couple different ways, really, we could look at that. Is it me in a declaration of faith saying, Lord, I am holding on to you? Or, or can we flip that? And it's God declaring to me, I am holding on to you. You can hear it both ways. And I think it's beautiful that we can hear that both ways. The, the Hebrews, if you flip into Leviticus chapter 24, 16, to blaspheme the name of the Lord was punishable by death. And so, it says in verse 16, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. And the context for that was from a, a uh, Hebrew citizen who was also Egyptian, had quarreled with another and, and cursed God's name in the process the Hebrews became, were so worried about this that they stopped using God's name altogether and, and would hyphenate and would use other names for God. We have descriptive names all over Scripture. We've already referenced Abba, which roughly translates to Dad or Daddy. Um, I see many familiar faces in here, but a lot of times, again, my family, we go to the first service, and uh, there's no children's church in the first service. And usually... There are two to three kids about my son's age. He's seven. And uh, they, they do wonderful sitting there listening. Of course, mine's usually playing with his Lego figures. Uh, but daily, constantly, dad, dad, daddy, daddy, hey, dad, hey, dad. I love hearing that. And while sometimes it may uh, distract me from the moment, He's reaching out with a pure heart because he's seeking his father's attention, his father's affection. It's such a beautiful story for who we are and that relationship we have with Christ. Adonai simply means Lord. I, again, I've given some examples here. Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. There are so many descriptive terms we use for God in Scripture that all point to his personality, his characteristics, his love for us. And it's in verse 5 and 6 where, again, God pauses, pulls the reins back in, and really now focuses on the backstory for the creation of man. Verse 5 and 6. Your harvests... <laughs> I'm in Leviticus. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. 
For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. The Hebrew word for ground is Adama. And again, if you take the A-H off the end of that, you clearly see the name of the first human that God created. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. I laughed this week as I, I read over this uh, again and thought it probably looked like what Coles County has looked like for the last five to six days. The mist rising from the ground, the ground covered in water, had not sent rain upon the earth. I'm, I'm not here to tell you whether or not it had rained before the time of Noah or not. That is something that scholars debate. I'm not sure that it's much of a relevant topic other than for polite discourse. Um, but what I see in verses 5, that rain had not been sent upon the earth there was, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. God wants man there. God wants man. He wants us to cultivate the ground. He wants us to be a part of that creation story. We're his heirs and we're invited into it. He wants us to care for his creation. That's one of the objectives that he gave to Adam in chapter 1. I am by no means a farmer. Uh, don't tend uh, to even pretend to act like I know a whole lot about cultivating and farming. But what I do know, an application that I can see in here, yes, we can talk about a flood with Noah in, in chapter 10, but really, when I see rain in Scripture, it brings redemption. Because there is going to be the fall of man. And our dad, our Abba, our daddy, still came for us in the form of Christ, in the form of His Spirit in us. That rain of the Word pouring over our bodies brings restoration to our souls. If you flip forward into Genesis, mine's on the next page, but chapter uh, 2, verses 10 through 14, Brock will get into this more next week as well, the four separate rivers in the region around Eden are mentioned. Names of those rivers may or may not have changed in our modern day times, uh, but those rivers are still there. And much of that region of the world today is desert, is arid. If we look in Isaiah at what God says about deserts, rivers, and rain. Isaiah 43. Verse 19. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Moving along to the next chapter. Verse 44. Chapter 44, verses 3 through 6. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. That's us. We have that spirit. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. 
And another will write on his hand belonging to the Lord and will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel in his Redeemer, that idea of redemption, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God beside me. So tying in that scripture that we've seen thus far, just these first few verses of chapter 2, God's creation story is not done. We're still a part of it. We still have a part to play in it. He wants us to be part of that story. Did he need us to be? No, he didn't. Did he invite us and want us to be part of it? Absolutely. Do I need my son's help when I'm trying to repair a leak on the roof or a board that has popped loose? No, I don't need his help. If he asks if he can help, do I allow it? Sure. In my human flesh, do I get frustrated if he doesn't help in the right way? Probably. But I'm not God. Okay, but those stories are beautiful and those, those archetypes are there for us to see that he wants us to be part of that story. So in 1948, the state of Israel was reborn. Something that scholars, historical scholars still debate and scratch their heads about today. How can a people that had not existed as a nation come together, Aliyah, the Aliyah, what, what Jews today still can do is migrate to the nation of Israel and make Aliyah become part of that country. How can that happen? They were on the ash heap of history. This begotten people, long forgotten, and yet resurrected. The state of Israel today is incredibly prosperous, incredibly fruitful. No doubt God's hand is in that as his chosen people. And we, as an extension of the church, we are part of that story as his church. As we get to our last verse for this morning, chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Some translations may say became a soul, a living soul. That idea of forming from dust of the ground, Brock mentioned uh, recently how the elements that make up dirt are the same elements that make up our physical bodies. The childish side of my brain went to Pigpen, um, a fun cartoon character whom... Many of us well remember um, the other word that comes out here often is the word ruach, the Hebrew word ruach, which means the breath of life. And it could also represent spirit, could be capital S, the Holy Spirit. It could also translate to wind, breath, breathing. God breathed his spirit into us which makes us separate from the other beasts that were created. That living soul that we have that can commune with him. If you've ever had one of those moments where you felt like God has spoken to you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to venture to guess it might have been that still small voice, that whisper. Sometimes there's a great wind that can come against us. I think of the disciples fighting against the wind and God telling it to stop. 
I came across a C.S. Lewis quote as I was researching this idea that you find the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. I had the experience of being in one of those desert countries in the Middle East a number of years ago um, and experiencing one or two sandstorms, dust storms, and it looked like I was on Tatooine uh, for your Star Wars fans out there. It was difficult to fight against it. That dirt, that sand got everywhere. Places that you didn't think it could get. It was in everything. If we choose to lie down, if we go back to verse 1, if we choose to kneel as part of that blessing, if we choose to kneel before God and not fight against the wind, not fight against the Holy Spirit in our lives, those blessings will shine forth all the more. Some scriptural context, if we look at Galatians and Romans here as we, as we finish up today. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. We are not under the law as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, someone who satisfy the tenets of the law. We are not under the law to one day a week observe a Sabbath and do no work. That Sabbath is in us every day. And if we allow our spirit to commune with his spirit and we kneel before it, if we lie down to it, we can walk so much more easily. Romans 8, 26 to 28, in reference to that Holy Spirit within us, communing with our spirit. And in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Remember, He gives us purpose in this world. He wants to commune with us. He has made a way for us to come back to Him as He had desired with Adam the man who had been formed from the ground. And one day, it will all be wiped away, those tears, the heartache, the pain, it will be made new. If we choose to walk with the Spirit instead of against the Spirit, as I read from one other author, it'll be a breeze. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for those who are here with us today. I thank you for being in our hearts, being that spirit. I pray that as we leave this place in a few moments today, Lord, that that spirit will shine forth as we interact with those around us and that people will see you when they see us. 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise, your redemption. Thank you for story after story of redemption in your word. I know I've needed it. You are so good to us, Father. We thank you for Jesus as that redemption story. Thank you that we can freely accept him and for him being in our hearts as we learn and commune more with him. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.